This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is David Morehouse. David was born into a family of career military officers and for nearly 20 years steadied himself on an unwavering track of becoming a general in the United States Army. Then in 1987, a machine gun bullet hit him and by all accounts should have killed him instantly. Instead, this experience opened his perception to a new reality and a new understanding of personal and collective purpose. He was recruited into a top-secret program of the CIA and trained as a remote viewer, capable of seeing persons, places, and things, distant in space-time to gather information. David is the author of the international bestseller, Psychic Warrior, and with Sounds True, David Morehouse has created several titles, including Remote Viewing, an online training course, where he includes instructions and guided practices for coordinate remote viewing that will allow you to hone, expand, and deepen your skills in remote viewing. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David and I spoke about his training in remote viewing and how and why remote viewing is valued by the military. We also talked about looking at people through an eighth-dimensional lens and what it might mean to remote view into the future. Finally, we talked about how remote viewing transforms the human heart. Here's my conversation with David Morehouse. David, how did the military identify you as someone who would be a good candidate for training in remote viewing? Well, it was a a very lucky thing to have been selected. There were a lot of people that were aware of the program uh, back in the 70s and in the 80s who, of course, wanted wanted to be part of the program but were never in a position to be identified or selected uh, to be part of the program. So typically when something is born uh, and being raised and honed and developed and fine-tuned as a, an intelligence collection methodology, only people that are in the intelligence, uh, intelligence world are people that get identified and, and, uh, and ushered into these programs and then trained to participate in the programs. And mine was just clearly a, a direction uh, steered by fate. I was a you know a special operations infantry officer, uh, wounded in the head uh, by a machine gun bullet, uh, and then 
from the books, you know, various things started happening, very long and elaborate discussions of those, and then brought from uh, from the Ranger uh, Battalion, 1st Ranger Battalion, uh, and was scheduled and planned by the Army to go one direction, to be an aide to an Italian general, to learn, be sent off to the Defense Language Institute to learn to speak Italian, and then go to do that. And then just as fate was in charge, it turned around and... Uh, that general selected somebody else in country, and uh, so now I was a, a, an open candidate, with a former Ranger Company commander, an Airborne Company commander, and was picked for a bunch of black book assignments, uh, which were you know, special access programs, and ended up being recruited into one of those special access programs where I was there for a year. And that special access program was deeply embedded into uh, the intelligence community. Uh, there have been several books written about it now. Uh, one of the books is called Killer Elite, and uh, I was in that, in that unit. And in that unit, you had to go through uh, a very strong battery of psycho- psychological evaluation and testing because they wanted to have their finger on the psychiatric pulse of every individual that belonged to this particular organization. And it was during that time that I began to divulge to the psychologist uh, in charge of the members of that organization some of the experiences that I was having, uh, nightmarish and uh, awakening experiences that were happening, transformational, transformational experiences that were happening. And I shared with this individual all of those uh, experiences, and that individual then picked me up and took me to uh, this top-secret clan of psychic spies called Remote Viewers, housed at, uh, at Fort Meade, Maryland at that time, under the Directorate of Science and Technology for the Defense Intelligence Agency, with direct oversight being provided by the Central Intelligence Agency. And I was the first non-intelligence-based uh, recruit into that organization. I was the first person brought in with purely a special operations combat experience to be brought into that. Now, David, when you say you were having awakening-type experiences and nightmarish experiences, were these as a result of the bullet wound, or how do you attribute them, and what were the experiences you were having? Uh Yes, yeah, they were the short answer is yes. They were attributed to the traumatic uh to the traumatic brain injury uh of being shot in the head by a weapon traveling roughly 2832 feet per second. Roughly. Uh, and when you're hit per yeah, roughly. <laughs> and when you're hit by a projectile like that and it penetrates your helmet, uh, did not didn't break the skin, but it uh, it raised a fairly significant uh, hematoma on my head, and it really knocked me silly. It knocked me out for a very long period of time. And in those days, we didn't the the terms post traumatic stress that that acronym didn't the acronym PTSD didn't exist. Post traumatic stress was still an enigma. People sort of thought maybe it was there, but didn't really even give credit for it. Uh, the idea of traumatic brain injury and what happens and what causes it, that was also not part of the lexicon of military medicine at that particular time. We didn't, we understood concussive events only vaguely and didn't really 
know how to treat them or what to do with them. And when you stand up off the desert floor and you've been knocked unconscious and the, and the battalion surgeon comes over and looks at you and recognizes you've got a big lump raising up on your head and knows you've been knocked out for a period of time, Following his standard medical practice, if he had those tools available to him, he probably would have sent me in for an, at least an X-ray and you know to try to look at it and see what might be going on inside. But if I pass all of the basic tests of being able to stand there and remember my name, remember where I am and what I'm doing, uh, you know, the only guidance that can be given at that juncture for a ranger company commander is to turn around and say, okay, well, don't wear your don't wear your Kevlar helmet now because your head's swelling. Uh, you know, you have to wear just wear your soft cap and go back to train your company, uh, and that's what I wanted to hear. So, and if he, frankly, if he had told me something different, I would have fought against it because I didn't want to go anywhere to be taken away from my country, my company, uh, and my training mission to go take care of myself medically. That would have been just a bad thing to do as a company commander of Rangers. So you go back to it then, and then because of this traumatic brain injury, because of this experience, you it, it, this traumatic impact opens up a conduit into the unconscious. Now, people everywhere, all of us, can have those experiences. We can have an emotional impact that opens up these conduits into the unconscious where we see, experience, uh, develop a new perception on reality. You can have a physical impact or physical trauma, heart attacks, uh, car accidents. You know, There are just countless stories and examples of these throughout our life where where people have these emotional impacts, these spiritual impacts, these physical impacts or traumas that open up a new understanding, a new perspective on reality for us. And that is essentially what happened to me. Here I was now standing on the desert, walking back to go to conduct training and to continue my mission there. And in the darkness of my mind, as I lie down to sleep, as I, you know, I'm walking in quiet, there are so many times when you're commanding that. Uh, even though you're leading 250, 260 some odd soldiers uh, every day responsible for everything that happens to them, there are still these moments of deep reflection and meditation. There are times where you send your lieutenants off to do what they're doing and you're watching your company and then you're there by yourself. And in these moments where my thoughts might have been filled with more direct conscious things, um, I found that I was suddenly cast into a place of being very inwardly and at the same time outwardly uh, connected to something bigger than myself. And at first I did not understand it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't understand why this rush of things coming to me uh, was not coming at the pace that I wanted it to come, was not coming at the pace that I was comfortable with. I was no longer in control of the information coming to me. Bizarre thoughts, wild thoughts, thoughts, you know, reflective of something that I had never, ever considered a reality or a possibility in my life. And so when those things happen to us, when we consider ourselves otherwise, in quotes, normal, uh, we begin to describe those things as nightmarish. Why are they nightmarish? Because we're not in control of them. <laughs> Why are they nightmarish? Because they're not what we choose to think about. They are things that are frightening, unknown to us, uh, new, strange, bizarre, you know, things that are outside the physical realm of everyday conscious thought. That's what happened to me. Um, I saw what I called an angel. And uh, again, you know, any of these things that we begin to experience, what we're doing in our brain is always... Uh, gathering evidence and attempting to match what we see and what we are perceiving with things that we know, things that we believe, things that we understand, uh, things that are are part of our 
of our life experience, and then we attach or assign names to those things. So you're seeing uh, an entity, a being, a spirit, an apparition, a phantom, uh, you know, a concept, a, a thought that's out there, uh, and your brain is rapidly moving at the speed of thought, attempting to assemble that into something meaningful, so it throws up angel. And that's what I called it, was an angel. And that's how I related to it, was as an angel. And an angel giving me guidance and giving me direction. And uh, at that time, this angel was giving me some degree of clarity that I was on a path that was not the path that was meant for me. And I was supposed to be on a different path. And that path was to be a teacher, a teacher not of of conflict, but of conflict resolution, uh, a teacher of perhaps alternative methods of conflict resolution. And I, I would be ridiculous if I turned to you at this point and to any of the listeners and said, oh, yeah, I understood all of that. <laughs> I had no clue what that meant. I, I was so naive about any of these things because my life was very fixed. It was on a very definite path. There was no variance from that path whatsoever as I saw it. I had been raised, groomed, polished to do what I was doing, and there was nothing that was going to sever me from that path or take me off of it. Nothing. But then this happened. You mentioned, David, that a brain injury like this can open up a conduit to the unconscious and that there are other things that can open up, other kinds of impacts that can open up conduits to the unconscious. But for somebody, let's say, who's not suffering any kind of major stressor in their life, and yet they're interested in learning remote viewing, will this passageway into the unconscious open for them? Or are you more likely to be successful if you've you know, had some kind of you know, bullet to the head? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a really, really good question. Um, the answer is this is, an, this is an, an ability that is not unique uh, to me or anyone else. This is a, an ability that is inherent in every human being. And it, the quest to know what is beyond the other side of the physical is something that is part of the thoughts uh, every day of 99% of the population or 98% of the population. It was actually a CNN study done many years ago, 15 years ago, trying to ask the number of the population that believed that there was something beyond the physical. And that the answer in the poll given was that 98% of the population believes that there is something beyond the physical. 2% believe that there is not. Uh, that's okay. That's only 2%. That's a very significant minority. And if that significant minority believes that there is nothing beyond the physical, that you exist now, and when you're done, the lights go out and they pat you in the face with a shovel and blow taps over your butt, right? And, and that's it. You're done. Uh, there are other people that believe something completely different. They believe that there's something beyond the physical, and it occupies their thoughts consciously or unconsciously all of the time. So to answer the question of how do you go from believing to knowing that there was something beyond the physical, well, that requires that any individual uh, on this quest that recognizes that they want to go, they're no longer just comfortable with believing that there's something beyond the physical. They really want to know. That, well, that requires the, the act of doing, engaging in something, of really digging deep and participating in something. 
of doing something and participating and studying and, and practicing uh, in the physical and in the non-physical realm, whatever path or method you might choose uh, with which to engage that. Remote viewing is just one path. And it, the, remote, the beauty of the remote viewing, I think, is, that, is just that everyone understands where it came from. It's the fact that it came from science. It was born in science. It was studied in science. It was bred in science. It was taken by science. Uh, physicists, laser physicists, Targan, put a, produced the information back in the 70s after five, six years of study and millions of dollars in research dollars from the federal government being spent on the exploration of this phenomenon to come forward as physicists when the rest of the scientific community would have loved for, well, those who are disbelievers, would have loved for them to have come forward and said, you know what, we looked at this, we studied it, we spent millions of dollars, uh, we conducted all of our tests, and we can absolutely conclude there is nothing to this human phenomenon of being able to see distant in space at time. Instead, they came forward and said exactly the opposite of that. <laughs> and people should really clamp onto that. You know, there can be any kind of a skeptic or a naysayer step forward and go, ah, there's nothing there. Well, that's not what science says. Now, you can quibble all you want, and they will, over whether or not the science was good science or whether it was this or whether it was, you know, whether it was research or bias involved. You can always throw up the negative argument, but the bottom line is that science, federally funded science, came forward and said there is this ability, unique not to individuals, but inherent in every member of the population, and that all of you have it, and all of you can take it and hone it and fine-tune it and use it to understand and build and develop a different perspective of reality for yourself. You know, there was an article that just came out, uh, it just came out uh, f that was talking about, uh, came out on the, set, on the 6th, so two days ago, and this particular article, those that want to go look at it, was uh, it's done by Andrew uh, Tarantola, T-A-R-A-N-T-O-L-A. And the article is talking about the U.S. military wanting to develop the sixth sensing in super soldiers. Well, if any of you have read any of my books or looked at any of those things, you go back to my, and even on my blog on my webpage, you can go back and read about uh, the 1st Earth Battalion. And, of course, there was this kind of tongue-in-cheap movie done by this gonzo journalist called, you know, The Men Who Stare at Goats. And that was there, and so everybody kind of looks at that as the accurate depiction of uh, what was going on in the 1st Earth Battalion, and uh, it wasn't. It was done to be tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but if you understand really the pure essence of what that movie is about, understand that the Office of Naval Research uh, is now looking again at trying to come up with ways that soldiers will, can be trained to harness their inner senses to improve their chances of getting out of battle alive and intact. Uh, so they want to figure out how they can enhance the soldier's ability to detect and act on unique patterns uh, without consciously and internally analyzing them. Well, that is, if you're understanding what I'm saying to you, that is exactly what we're talking about in remote viewing, only we've taken it from its roots, which was in the military intelligence community, and we've taken it, taken it from there, and we've, I took it and remolded it, re-sculpted it into something that left all of that behind and moved forward into using it as something that can be of benefit to all humanity, using the same scientific tools, techniques, protocols, procedures, but using it for us 
to decide how each one of us will build a new perception of reality for ourselves and move forward in this life with unlimited promise and possibility. That's the whole idea with taking it. It's not about winning the lottery. It's not about doing something. It's about having a different perception, uh, a different perspective on life and on reality and on our connectedness to all things. That's what we're doing with it now. And, you know, and I want to talk more about that, David, but just before we get there, I'm curious how accurate remote viewing is, meaning here you were working with other people, you were, were working with targets. What was the level of accuracy you and your team were able to achieve? To answer the question, I, I need to make sure I preframe the question with this understanding. There will be my perception of it. There will be anybody else's perception of it. There will be what was publicly uh, stated by the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, there will be people who who roll up a figure that are a, that's a skeptical figure that will be lesser than what it is. There will be people who roll up a research figure, uh, again justifying the the millions of dollars spent and or. F- additional millions of dollars being spent, and their, their figure will be higher. And so the truth uh, it, you know, rests somewhere in between all of those data points. And it, as long as everybody understands that, uh, that it will all, it, it, is as stati- it is pure statistics. You know, it paints whatever picture you want it to paint. Uh, so it, what is the level of accuracy? Uh, far more than you would think that it would be. And uh, what is the level of accuracy? Accuracy. It depends on the individual doing the work, and it also depends on the type of the type of work they're doing. Uh, it also depends on how the evaluator is looking at it. Is it more? Uh, is it more than chance? Yes, it is. Uh, is it less than what your you know happy expectation of it would be? Yeah, it is. It's far less. It has some. It has some very real limitations. So how valuable is it? it? That, again, depends on the individual participating in it and doing it and working with it. Uh, is it of uh, established known value to the whole of the human condition? No, not really. Uh, it, will there ever be? Nope, probably not, because I don't think we'll ever come to an agreement on that. Uh, is, it of, uh, is it of value to each individual who participates in it? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, how much? I don't know. It depends on the individual. And it depends on what you're getting out of it. If it empowers you to understand your connectedness to all things, is that of great value to you? Yeah, well, it is to me. It may not be to a lot of other people. Is it worth uh, participating in a webinar or reading a book or listening to a tape? Uh, it would be to me. Uh, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to know that, uh, being a, a realist in this perspective. I, if somebody is telling you that they participated in something, uh, that they were, it was of tremendous value for them spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, uh, physically, uh, and they would want to share that. Is it worth your time to listen? God, I certainly hope so. You know, if you're open to those kinds of possibilities, uh, then you're going to be a better person for being open to those kinds of possibilities. Do you need, need to do your own due diligence to assess whether or not it's highly valuable to you? Absolutely. My goodness, yeah, you do. Uh, and should you step into it with some preconceived notion, an expectation of how valuable it's going to be to you now, because then you're not doing due diligence. You're preframing yourself and front-loading yourself to an expectation, and you're not going to be honest with yourself about what it does or doesn't do for you. Uh, if you're listening to me and you and, and and I sound credible to you, do it. You know, it, jump into it, explore it, listen. Ex, you know, jump in, do it.
do it. So given that it sounds like the way that you're describing that one of the primary benefits is how people's experience of consciousness changes through their own investigation of remote viewing, what I'm curious to know is how has your experience of consciousness been informed by remote viewing? Uh Tremendously, and for this simple reason, I, you know, I had a belief that there was something beyond the physical. It was not an educated belief. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't, you know, I didn't study or understand uh, the mechanism or the meaning or the idea of God. I didn't, uh, you know, I kind of sort of thought that there was going to be a life after this life, but I really didn't give it a lot of thought, and maybe I should have, but I didn't growing up. I didn't have a very spiritual family upbringing, uh, and so, and I didn't really think about our connectedness to all things. I didn't. I just kind of dealt with what was in front of me every day and figured that really the mark of a man as a leader in uh, in combat or a leader in the leader in the military was in your ability to train and uh, be indifferent and uh to be cold and to be you know balanced in what you're doing but you know to let the chaplain uh for the battalion be the spiritual connection there you had another job to do and so with this experience immediately opening all of this up and then with this really tremendous blessing of being brought into this unit and given this opportunity to systematically, daily, unlock this door and step into this, to the unconscious mind and explore with a purpose, uh, with a reason for being there, uh, with a mission to come back with something and to be able to look at it and unfold it and understand it and then go back in again and and to walk in my unconscious mind with a purpose, with an understanding. It just unconsciously opened this unconscious mind. Just every day through the practice of doing it, it opened me up to the possibilities that were there. And then suddenly when I, I started grasping what was happening, then I, I really wanted to get good at it. I really wanted to fully understand it and be better at it. Once I started just seeing this subtle opening that was there, then the clarity, uh, the the meaning, the intense possibility of what it meant to understand it, to not just believe it or hope it or wish it or pray for it anymore, but to understand that I had an ability to to step into this place and to commune with God, to 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 to, to speak to the universe, to experience all of these things and build my own perception of it in a really intense, heightened way, was uh, transformational to me for me, for my family, for everyone that knew me uh, in a very powerful, almost to, to such a degree that words just never fully capture how significant it was to me. I'm always troubled that I can't, I don't have the language. That's okay, to but you know, part it. of what I'm getting at is, you know, you're talking about this existence beyond the physical. So what do you now know about consciousness because of all the remote viewing that you've done? Do you mean, what do I know is on the other side of this physical reality? Yeah. Yeah. Infinite other existences. Um, does it mean, you know, a reincarnation back into this process, uh, in this planet, and this world, doing these things as another being? I don't know. That part 
if there's a if there's an element of clarity to be gained there that was never gifted to me and uh i can say that i actually looked for it and i never got that answer it doesn't mean it doesn't exist maybe i wasn't supposed to know it maybe i didn't look in the right place maybe i didn't frame my questions properly as i stepped into the unconscious mind searching there for what i was supposed to learn um I know that the answer to everything is there. I know that uh, there's a tremendous amount of peace and understanding to be to be had there, uh, and that it's there just for those who are brave enough, courageous enough, willing to step into the unknown, uh, to let go of what they think they know, and to step into a place of honest, humble, loving exploration and openness to what is there. Um, I think that had, if I knew what I know now, I would have been a far better father. I would have been a far better husband. I would have been a far better uh, just playmate and person. Uh, you know, I would have been a better leader. I would have been, uh, I would have been a better friend. I would have. In what way, David? Knowing what you know now. In every imaginable way, I would have been more aware of the feelings. I would have been more aware of of what drives people. Of what people are made up of. I would have looked beyond their skin uh, to what is inside of them, to what makes them up. I would have looked at them eight-dimensionally. You know, I would not have looked at them three-dimensionally. I would have been able to perceive them in a different way. Help me understand what that means. I, I don't know what it means to look at someone eight-dimensionally. Well, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, of, like, the orca whale. Uh, an orca whale, it is believed by those who research the orca whale, that an orca whale, through its fantastic sonar capabilities, that when it actually scans a human being or scans prey, that it doesn't it it does or or its world around it, that it actually sees the world devoid of surfaces. So it actually sees the world how the world is made up in waveform expressions of itself. So it doesn't see a surface uh, or reflective surface. It sees through the object, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a stone or another, you know, whether it's a stone or another mammal or a fish or a human or a boat or whatever it happens to be, it sees through it. It sees it eight-dimensionally. It no longer sees just its height, width, depth, and, you know, a dimension of time that it takes for that object to move from point A to point B, and it's in its space. What it actually does is it sees through it. It sees through the way and into the wave waveform expression of everything that is in front of it. So that actually, for the researchers who study it, uh, means, it means to them that it is really very much a godlike creature because it does see through everything and understand what is going on in the thoughts, the history, the makeup, the perceptions, the, uh, the love, the hate, uh, the possibility, the, the opportunity, the the history of this being that it's looking into because it sees it eight-dimensionally from a, a hyperspace perspective. I, I can't explain that part to you. You would really have to, if you're going to jump into eight-dimensional uh, uh, cubic forms and understand eight-dimensional space, that, that's going to be a whole other podcast. Uh, but just to understand it means, in, in simplistic terms, it means to be able to perceive something beyond a four-dimensional construct. It means to be able to see it uh, at a quantum level. And that's how uh, we know an orca whale 
perceives the world around it at a quantum level. So do we have that capability as human beings? Well, not if all we rely upon is our ability to see something in in four-dimensional space. It's height, weight, depth, and it, it's uh, uh, height, width, and depth, and a, an element of time, which is how the physical world sees everything. When you start understanding an eight-dimensional perspective or an unconscious perspective of knowing something without knowing how you know it, uh, what is this gut feeling? What is this intuitive feeling? Where does it come from? Why is it there? Uh, why should I trust it? Uh, if I feel badly about the energy that's coming from something, some place, some person, some situation, some event, why should I trust that? Why should I act upon it? Why should I move away from it? Or why should I move into it? Uh, those are the kinds of things that through the practice of any path that sharpens those skills, that hones those skills, that makes you more aware of those message, of that speak, of that inner voice, then that is a good thing and you need to move closer to it. Uh, and that that's what remote viewing does. It just does it from a scientific perspective that through this scientific endeavor you start to embrace this spiritual piece of what is there, that spiritual understanding. So that's what remote viewing has done for me is it has stripped away all of these layers of consciousness that have said this is how you are to perceive the world, this is how you are supposed to react and live within the world, this is how you're supposed to assess everything in the world, it opened up and removed all of those boundaries and gave me new tools, new understanding, new insight uh, to the world around me. Uh, that was a new set of keys to the kingdom for me. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, that's very helpful to hear you talk about this idea of eight-dimensional perception. And what I'd love to know is when you were being trained in remote viewing day after day by the military, what was that training like? How did it go? It was boring. It was, it was like being a graduate student uh, placed back in a freshman high school class uh, on almost every level. It was maddening. Uh, for those of you that, that uh, are, are mildly attention deficit disorder like I am, I was, uh, my mind was constantly wandering. It wasn't moving fast enough for me. I mean, they would do things like you'd step into the room and there was this, you know, a, a file drawer safe. Uh, those of you that have seen them there in the Intel community, everything gets locked up in a safe. So they have filing cabinets that are, in fact, safes. So there was one that was uh, four or five drawers high. And then, you know, it was quite, quite deep, 24 inches deep, and, you know, it was a legal file width. And they'd open the top drawer, and they'd pull out the first file, and they'd go, okay, you start here. And when you finish reading every file in this cabinet all the way down to the last file on the back of the, last of the bottom drawer, then we'll start your training. Oh, huh, my God, 
I was like, are you kidding me? You know, I'm here now, and now what I have to do is read every one of these files from here to there. So that took that took a long time to get through that. And then everything was then started the next piece, okay? Now you're going to learn your stage one, and you would get a stage one briefing. Uh, you had seven stages to learn, so they would give you a stage one briefing. The stage one briefing would go on for a week, maybe two weeks, because you had to verbally and in writing articulate to your trainer your understanding of what you had just been told. And if that collective of those who were trained believed that you were now comfortable with what you were being given, you were permitted to go on to the next level of training. Well, there again, this was a struggle because it ended up being not how you really understood the material, but how you were able to externally convince someone or persuade someone else that you understood the material. So that was a challenge, for, for especially for me, and especially for me being an infantry officer and a special ops guy because you're walking into this and people didn't question whether or not you understood something in the environment that I came from. That was very rare. So now you're in here with a group of peers, uh, you know, challenging whether or not you fully embraced the concept that they were trying to get across to you. In retrospect, as an educator and as a trainer, it was an adequate system, uh, and they did the best that they could. But they did they did bizarre things, like they would not give you a train the training manual that existed, which was a really bad training manual, as it turns out. But the training training manual was always being dangled in front of you as a carrot, like, okay, well, you get through all of the training, we'll give you the training manual. So you're like, what? You mean after I've supposedly learned everything, then you're going to give me the manual? Uh, and that was just, to me, as a trainer and educator, nuts uh, to be able to do to do something like that. Uh, they had their reasons for it, and that's not what we need to discuss. But that was what the training program was like. It's very long. It was 12 to 18 months on average. I completed the training in six months, but... Uh, it was typically 12 to 18 months long. Uh, there was no manual until after the fact. It was highly theoretical. Much of it was individualized training from someone who had crossed over this transformational path from believing to knowing. So now, whether they were a good teacher or not, they were now responsible for training and opening your eyes. But one thing that was infallible in the training mechanism was the idea that actually participating in a session was how one learned and learned at an accelerated rate. And once you got out of your own way and stopped being uh, a bore in that you were a skeptic on everything, once you finally started to accept and embrace what you were experiencing, you started to take the barrier, the physical training barriers down. The intellectual training barriers began to fall away. The spiritual obstacles began to fall away, and you started to open at an ever-increasingly rapid pace through the experience of doing in the physical and the non-physical. Uh, it came, started coming in like the the gates had been opened on the dam, the floodgates were open, and the information began to pour, the understanding began to pour. And the beauty of being in the environment of learning where you have others who are experiencing simultaneously uh, in this endeavor is that you now have, you have a feedback mechanism and a sharing mechanism with other like-minded learners 
that tremendously accelerates the learning process. It's extremely difficult to grab the book or to grab a handout or a flyer or grab something else and go sit by yourself and read it and attempt to interpret it and uh, and really get the kind of experience that is fully possible from it in order to maximize the learning potential the ability to, again, go back to this webinar concept where you have everyone hooked up in this mastermind kind of a concept uh, where everyone is sharing and interacting and listening and asking questions and you're learning so much, it accelerates the learning curve, and that's important. Uh, It's great to be able to get the books, the tapes, and the other things and do that, but as soon as we start to pull it together, uh, yet a higher level, we accelerate the learning process. So you started working then on actual targets with your learning group? Is that how it went? Well, I started engaging targets as soon as I read the file safe. So as soon as I read the file safe, I got my first briefing. Uh, and my first briefing, two days later, uh, I was putting pen to paper and closing my eyes and going into an altered brainwave state and attempting to then detect and decode eight-dimensional waveform data into four-dimensional waveform data in my conscious mind and then further distilling that information down uh, into two-dimensional media with pen to paper and attempting to draw, sketch, and uh, describe verbally what I, in writing what I was experiencing, what I was perceiving. So the act of participating in that is what began to open the conduits further into the unconscious. And the more you participate in that, uh, the, the more quickly those conduits become open and the more polished they become and the more quickly the data and the exchange of data, of information between this conscious mind and the unconscious mind uh, begins to accelerate. Now, you talked about going into a slight trance state, and I know when you teach remote viewing, you include a quote-unquote pink noise audio track that helps people enter an alpha state, an alpha brainwave state. And just maybe just speak briefly about that, and then I have another question for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's slightly more than pink noise. It's uh, it's pink noise with binaural beat, and the binaural beat is uh, what we know that the binaural beat will do is that it will entrain uh, it will entrain the mind into an alpha wave state. And then there's another CD that that we have uh, that is actually entrains the brain into a theta wave state. Uh, an alpha wave state is just below the conscious threshold in, in lay terms. You're just in this place. You're still aware of what's going on in the room physically, but you are in a very relaxed state. And in that relaxed state, that is where you're doing the work of detecting. And uh, and then you have to consciously come back. You're porpoising up to decode onto the page, then back in to detect, then back up to decode again. And that's what we're doing in the coordinate remote viewing pink alpha. That's the pink alpha has the binaural beat of alpha wave in there. And it also has a yogic relaxation, breath meditation that precedes it, which is part of the cool down process to get you into this altered state uh, to actually begin doing the work. You can do it without it, but again, it is just a training accelerator. That's why we put it in there. Uh, as we're training you, as we're teaching you to do this. And then what will happen eventually is you'll put that aside. You won't need it any longer. Once you know what an alpha wave state feels like and you know how to get there, you won't need the artificial device to get you there. You'll be able to do it very quickly, seconds, to get to that state. Okay, and then, David, here's my question. Of course, 
human beings have been using the sound of drums and rattles to enter that kind of altered state, you know, light trance state, and receive information, divination, since the beginning of time. I mean, this is how shamanic practitioners have worked in traditional cultures. So what is it about remote viewing that's different than what humans have been doing for thousands of years? Uh, It's not different. It is just yet another path to get to that same place. Um, It is, you know, any of those things, everything is energy, and energy is everything. So therefore, everything can be expressed in its waveform, you know, in its waveform, in the waveform expression of itself. So if one remembers that, that energy is everything, and everything is energy, and so therefore, everything can be expressed in waveform, then you're understanding that the drums and the anything else that that is part of any other path or practice that what it is doing is simply again causing the brain the conscious mind to focus on something outside of the physical dimension uh, causing that focus to happen so that we begin in to be entrained with that beat with that frequency with that waveform that puts us into this altered state of consciousness where then we begin that journey into the unconscious mind. Remote viewing and its coordinate remote viewing form is just a scientifically based uh, former intelligence collection methodology now taken and transformed into uh, a spiritual empowerment practice, if you will, uh, that has its history and its roots still embedded in science and in the intelligence community, but it is now no longer sequestered away as this intelligence collection tool. It is now a tool of empowerment for everyone to participate in. Is it something that should supersede or surpass or bypass or remove any other practice that is out there? Absolutely no. No, it is not. It is yet one more path that can be walked. And if you are truly an explorer of spirit, then walk every possible path until you find the path that you choose to stand squarely on. This may not be that path, but it may be the path. And even if it is not, it's still going to open your eyes wider to what is there on the other side of the conscious mind, on the other side of the physical reality in which we now stand. Now, David, do you know, does the military still use remote viewing today? I mean, even with satellite? Yeah, absolutely. We have satellite imaging. I mean, wouldn't that be a little bit more reliable? Uh, Well, uh, what you learn in the intelligence community is that nobody puts all of their eggs in one basket. And no intelligence collection methodology is the end-all, be-all. If satellite imagery were the most valuable and the only valuable intelligence collection methodology available, then there wouldn't be human, SIGINT, ELENT, SIENT, all of the other INTs that are out there, right? Uh, Intelligence collection is putting together the pieces of the puzzle, and the pieces of the puzzle are manifested through whatever intelligence collection uh, methodology is available to them, and they don't leave any of them behind. What do you think the method of remote viewing has to add to the other methods that are available that is its unique contribution? Well, just as Stansfield Turner said, if it's three percent, if it was three percent accurate, as a former director of the CIA, if it, even if it's only three percent accurate, which of course we know it, it's documented to be far more than three percent accurate. But his point, the point that he was making was, if it was three percent accurate information that I cannot glean by any other means 
than it is intelligence dollars well spent. Now, if you understand what he is trying to get across, uh, then you understand the brilliance of the statement. It is, if I cannot glean that information by any other means, if I cannot get somebody to tell me about it, uh, if I can't shoot, if I can't photograph it, if I can't snatch it out of the air with signal or electronic intelligence, if I can't get any photographic evidence of something, if I can get uh, three or four or five or six people to sit in a, gr in a room in d at different times and perceive this target and come back with, uh, with matching data, uh, that I can then assemble into a perspective on what is taking place in this particular target quest, if you will, then that is highly accurate information, or it's highly valuable information uh, to to the process. And so, yeah, there is no question about it. They continue to do it. They would have never stopped it. However, they told you they stopped it, but what else would you expect them to do? I mean... <laughs> After there are several books written by it, uh, you know, mine was the first, but then after there are books written by every other member of that organization uh, who's retired or gotten out of the military, every other member of that organization telling a different perspective on that same story, uh, what else would anybody expect the intel community to do? Their, you know, their, their standard mission is neither confirm nor deny. So what they came up with was, you know, yeah, what it was, but it wasn't as good as everybody thought it was, and so, yeah, we're not going to do it anymore. Well, if you believe that, you know the rest of that adage. So, Now, here's something I'm curious about. I know when someone learns remote viewing that you could actually remote view into the future, and I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that. How could I remote view into the future? Does that mean that the future is a fixed target? Isn't it a moving target? Well, to truly understand it, you have to, we have we would have to go to the screen and get some sort of a graphic there where I can take an embedded diagram and explain to you what the difference between an embedded diagram is and and you know and 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 what I'm trying to show to you, express to you eight dimensionally, and understanding uh, you know the mechanism of time using Dirac's delta function and a lot of other mathematical expressions that show you. I don't have the brain power for all that, David. You're going to have to bring it down for me. You know. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm just trying to set the stage that says okay. it's a difficult thing to it's a difficult thing to describe verbally to people without any other kind of a training aid. But let's just say that can you view into the future? Sure, you can view into the future. Is it highly accurate? No, because what is it? Uh, you're looking at a potential outcome. You're looking at one potential potential outcome, and there are an infinite number of variables in the moment that are driving what that potential outcome is and or whether or not that potential outcome ever manifests in the moment. So you're looking at a potential outcome. If you look at that potential outcome and if you cause that outcome to fluoresce because you're putting a lot of time, energy, emotion, focus on it, does it mean that you might drive a pattern of perceptions uh, or a, a pattern of potentials to that uh, particular outcome? Yes, you could. If you see it there and if you give it a great deal of energy, what typically happens if you see something, if you establish an outcome or a possibility and you give it a tremendous amount of energy and focus so that almost every moment in the present, in the moment, right now, no, right now, no, right now, you're thinking about that potential outcome. What happens? Well, lo and behold, typically people find that it shows up and then, you know, they're surprised or not surprised, uh, depending on your understanding 
but if you throw it out there as a possibility and constantly think about it, then yeah, you'll drive the moment to it or you know, steer, bring it into the moment, however you want to look at that. Uh, if you just recognize it as one potential in an infinite spectrum of potentials, you will realize that you can look for another potential and yet another potential and another potential and choose the potential and you can give that potential energy and you can then drive the moment to that potential outcome. It does not have to be the outcome that shows up. And a great deal of what shows up is always driven by our perceptions about the past and what the past uses as a pattern as a template to dictate what we are in the moment. Now, I would really love to talk about that at length, but you know, I don't think we have the time to do that. But if you understand that mechanism, then you understand that looking into the future is but you're looking at a shotgun blast of possibilities, of infinite possibilities. You pick one, give it a great deal of energy, you're liable to drive yourself right straight to it. Uh, you pick another one of, of lesser or greater impact, your choice, give that one a lot of energy, and you're going to drive that to become your outcome. Uh, and if you understand just that simple piece of this, you understand that you do not have to stumble and fall through life and do you know, whatever, drop, whatever shows up. And the past is only a prediction of the future if you let it be a prediction of the future. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Now, David, I just have two more questions for you. One is, I'm curious if you'd be willing to share with us something from your own experience as a remote viewer that totally surprised you and convinced you actually of the value of remote viewing. It was like, wow, I never would have thought it would have been like that. Something you experienced. Yeah. Um, I think the best story is a story about my father. Uh, I think it was the most impactful for me. My father, uh, as I said, you know, my father was a Golden Gloves boxer. He was a warrant officer in the army. He was typically, a, you know, a, a very straightforward, you know, no nonsense, uh, mean kind of guy. I mean, he was a soldier. Uh, he was a master sergeant in World War II. You know gave that up to be a warrant officer, fought in two wars, just a, a tremendous person, very focused and driven man, and, you know, uh, very authoritarian in how he raised my brother and my and May, and it was just a, it was a bizarre life, but I thought that that was what it was supposed to be. When I started having uh, challenges in the military because I was divulging information about this organization and there were other allegations being made and other stuff that was going on, you know, my father was probably my greatest supporter in all of that, next to my mother. But my father was there all the time, constantly, you know, there supporting me and making sure that everything was going the way it was supposed to go or, or being stepping in to defend. The day I resigned my commission, uh, my father, as I was standing outside of uh, the commanding general's office and I was getting ready to resign my commission, my father steps up to me and he was talking to my mother and they both kind of walked over to me as I was standing outside the office uh, alone there. And, and, and there were tears in my mother's eyes, and I could see sort of tears welling up in my father's eyes. And you, must have, you have to understand, that is something I never saw before, ever did I ever see that. And my father knew the entire story of everything about the gunshot wound in the desert and 
recruitment into this program, and my father was always the guy telling me, you know, stay away from this stuff, don't go into this thing, don't do this, you're, you know, you're stepping into a world that you're not going to be accepted in, you're going to end your career, it's all on and on and on, but yet I thought I knew best, and and I was being drawn into the vortex of just the possibility of all of this, so I wasn't going to stop, and it was what, in retrospect, I was supposed to be doing. But my father was trying to protect me. He knew that I was going to be spun into this, chewed up, spit back out in a new transform mechanism that he just wasn't comfortable with. So he comes over to me, standing out there. I'm kind of trembling because I'm getting ready to go in and end my life as I know it, end my career, turn over a piece of paper and walk out. And he says to me, uh, I just think it's important that right now I share a story with you. So my father tells me this story of a time where he was in Korea, that he got a bronze star for something. And I knew he had a bronze star. I didn't know what the story was behind it or what was in the narrative. I don't think I even saw the narrative. But my father rushed out to a tank that had thrown a track. The tank belonged to his battalion. Uh, He rushed out to this tank that was in a depression, and enemy mortars were zeroing in, bracketing this tank. My father goes out with his driver in a Jeep. They get to the tank. They start helping the crew to try to right the track on this tank and get that back on. And I don't know, I'm not a mechanized uh, or an, uh, an armor officer, but it's involved and it's snowing and it's rainy and there are mortar shells impacting around them. They're in a depression, so the shells are not getting to them. But while they're there working on this track, a shell lands close to the tank. This shell landing close to the tank kills several members of the crew on the tank. Uh, it knocks my father out, wounds his driver, bunch, just a bunch of things go on there, and the, the impact of this shell happens. And in this time that this occurs, my father says to me, standing outside this journal's office, he goes, so an angel came to me. And this angel came to me, and it said that you would one day have a son and that you would have a son that would teach peace. Now, my father, at that moment, shut down after coming, regaining consciousness in that moment. He always remembered that. He shared that story with my mother. He never shared it with my sister, who was at that time already born and 10 years old. And he did not share it with me ever until I'm standing there resigning my commission. He shares this story with me that says he has an angel come to him when he's knocked unconscious from a mortar shell that he would have a son. I was not even born yet. I was not born until 11 months later after my father returned from Korea, from the Korean War. Uh, And then I was conceived and born later. And now, here I am resigning my commission because I've told this story and I'm empowered in this new manner of seeing and my life is transforming, some for the good, some for the bad, some for the worse. And all of this is shifting and all of it's happening, and he knows that story, and he now shares with me his visitation from an angel. At that moment, as I connected the dots from my life to his life, that became a moment of clarity that was the most transformational thing that I have ever experienced. And he withheld that from me for 30-some-odd years of my life. That was an amazing thing for him to say to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing story, David. And I just have one last question for you. And in a sense, I think it comes from the feeling tone of that story, which is the thing that I'm always the most interested in is the opening of the human heart 
the change that takes place in the human heart. And I'm curious for you how learning remote viewing and then teaching remote viewing to others and even the practice of remote viewing, in your view, how does it change our experience of the human heart? Wow. Um, I know that from my experience uh, that my heart is uh, was opened through this this journey. It was opened. Uh, it was purified. It was it was clarified. Uh, it became infinite. Uh, I mean, the things that that I love, the things that I look around and and see in my life, uh, the things that I recognize now that I simply never would have recognized without this this opening of this chakra, if you will. Uh, I, I just the idea of what I might have been if this had never ha- had had never happened for me. If I had never been blessed by being shot in the head and being given an opportunity to participate in the organization that I did, uh, if I had never been given the opportunity to see the bad things and the good things and uh, to stumble, to fall, uh, to, to know what I know, to be around the people that I've been around, to participate in, in teaching, uh, in awakening and opening for other people, what I might have been as a human being, um, it's it, it's just unthinkable. It's unconscionable. Like I, I couldn't even fathom what I what I might have been if I had not been able to open my heart and open my mind uh, to the possibilities of this human experience. So that remote viewing for me was a tremendous tool, but remote viewing also was a tremendous gift in that it steered me along a path, a parallel path to be able to look left and right and see so many amazing, wonderful people and so many amazing, wonderful paths and experiences and lectures and books and uh, and methods and understandings and interpretations that I think all of that collectively was so powerfully transformational. Uh, I would never have been able to get there only with remote viewing any more than I would have only been able to get there through meditation or through something else. It was just this collective journey. And, and I, you know, I have to thank, uh, I have to thank people like you and, the, and people at Sounds True for, uh, for opening up that kind of possibility. It's, it's, it's really powerful to be able to go to one place and find so many different places, so many different opportunities and so many different paths and journeys all put together in one, uh, in one library, if you will. Uh, it's, that's a tremendous gift to the world. And I just want to make sure I tell you that because I, I sincerely believe that, uh, that it is, it's fantastic to be able to go to a place, to one place, and to be able to scroll through and find all of these really beautiful opportunities to experience uh, and to take hold of them and to know that they're, that they're freely generated and put there uh, and then at the same time guided by people who are really focused on... Uh, intensifying everyone's opening of their heart and opening of their experience, opening of their spirit, 
I'm just really grateful for that. I truly am. And I I know that's not what you probably wanted to hear from me, but I just wanted to say that. No, I appreciate it. I, I wanted to hear what was in your heart, and I appreciate hearing you say that. Thank you so much, David, for making the time for this conversation about your work with remote viewing. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. David Morehouse has created with Sounds True a user's manual for coordinate remote viewing, a very complete book, as well as an online training course, the remote viewing online training course. And this is really the definitive method for learning coordinate remote viewing. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.